Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. I'm your host, Quentin Harris, joined by my co-host, Daniel Halverson. We're going to take a minute here to jump right into the job reports as well as the interest rate forecast to kind of pair off the first episode that we did here in the lending update for 2024 in January and kind of walk you through our thought process as to what's going on with the job market as well as what we believe will happen with the Federal Reserve in this next meeting and meetings to come in March. Hope you guys enjoy. So let's get right after it. Lower mortgage rates was a Christmas miracle. We just talked about it earlier in the podcast here. I mean, you know, we got that December dip and it really escalated the industry um, to where numbers were up significantly, you know, almost 30%. And it just kind of showed that if we get a little bit of help, a little bit of cooperation and the Federal Reserve quits playing good cop, bad cop, that, man, this will move the market and it'll make a lot of people homeowners that have been sitting on the sidelines and waiting. Yeah, and to your point, I, I, I think that, it wasn't just the fact that interest rates went down. It was that the, the news was finally portraying the possibility of feds are anticipated to cut rates. Lower, lower rates are on the rise, and people start to see that information wherever they consume the news, television, internet, wherever they find that information, they, they see that and they say, okay, well, maybe this is my opportunity. Right. So I think that the interest and the demand in the market has kind of been accelerated by what's being portrayed that maybe rate cuts are on the horizon. Now, whether that happens in... March, whether that happens in May, obviously it remains to be seen, but a little bit of positive press for the the outlook on interest rates, I think, accelerated that more so than maybe even just the dip in rates that we saw <laughs> right. while, while substantial. Uh, but essentially saw rates go down by about a half percent uh, from first of the month to the end of December. So obviously we would love to have a few more of those. <laughs> that would be <laughs> but, great. But uh, but we'll take we'll take the wins here moving into the year. And, um, you know, We've talked a lot, lot about inflation. Um, December's per personal consumption expenditure PCE came out. It comes out at the end of the month. So as we're recording this, it's you know it's old news, a couple right. weeks old. But um, but really just focusing on that it, as we move into the future, unless things change, because mm -hmm. it really appears to be what the Federal Reserve is most interested in getting to that two percent target. So there's a lot of different inflation points out there, but but PCE, personal consumption expenditures, is what the feds have looked to to say, this is what we care most about getting to 2%. And, you know, the headline number came down to 2.6%, which was lower than expected. And also, uh, first time since spring of 2021 that that PCE number has been below 3%. So that was spring of 2021 was when it accelerated and took off. Right. Um, so we're, we're back you know, somewhere in range of where we were, what, almost three years ago now. Mm -hmm. And uh, the core reading came down from 35 to 3.2%, which is obviously we're still below, above 2%, but also came in below expectations. And uh, one of the things the Federal Reserve looks at is they look at the six-month run rate of inflation. So they look at the last six months, and they basically annualize that over 12 months to get a, to try to get a better idea of where inflation is heading if you look at the six-month run rate on PCE, that number is 1.85%. So uh, declare victory, start cutting rates. Let's get let's get down <laughs> to business. Uh, that's not going to happen. But, right. uh, but, you know, if they're looking at that run rate, they're thinking, okay, well, we've got to feel good about where we're headed, right? And I think it's important for our audience to understand there's a lag time in not only this index, but there's a lag time in inflation cycling through. Because, you know, if you're listening to this or you're watching it on YouTube at What's Your One More With The Number One, you're probably sitting here going, Hey man, this is bullshit. Like, I mean, my groceries are up. My gas isn't getting cheaper. My energy costs keep going up. I mean, we see it in the commentaries all the time, but as we try to explain, that's that lag time. It's making its way down to you. And what happens is we're seeing some of the impacts of that show up 
in the form of these rate hikes to reduce these numbers. Well, that's a big thing, though, and I, th- I think the general consumer doesn't understand that. Well, also important to note here that when prices go up, they don't generally ever come back down. That's a fair point. So when we have a lot of inflation, prices go up rapidly. Those prices are going to be, they're still going up, right? So right. Two point, you know, 2.6% inflation, if you look at the headline number, that means prices are still going up. So you, right. of course, your, your grocery bills aren't going down. They're just going up slower, which prices generally always go up slower. They want a 2% target. So they want them to go up slower. But, you know, the dynamic, it's, it's funny when, uh, you know, during COVID, we saw these shortages in the, in the construction world. Lumber prices went sure. up. Copper prices went up. You know, build build the high price of the home to the consumer went up because all of these other components went up, and then some of those prices leveled off. But did prices come down? Correct. So they t- no, they didn't. So you know, the reality is prices don't come down. They're just hoping to stabilize them so that they can go up in a much slower manner as we move into the future. Right. And I think that, you know, there's this argument though that says, hey, listen, I understand you got to move prices up because you got to keep with inflation. You got to keep up with adjustments and salaries. But then there's some people that are going, hey, listen, I think it's inflation greed. Like, I think you're raising, to your point about what you just said, I think you're raising the prices, but some of those things to make that have come down, but yet the price of this is not coming down. And so I think there's there's multiple sides to look at this, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point on inflation greed, I was talking to a, a gentleman today that's very involved in the construction world. Um, and uh, essentially what he said was he used to pay an architect five or $10,000 to get plans for the homes that he plans to build. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that price has gone up in some cases to $50,000. <laughs> So, so must be one hell of a home, you know, for that architect, and I'm, I'm sure they do a great job. Right, this isn't throwing shade at them, but you know, their cost of goods has not changed. Right? That's correct. Their cost of goods is their time, so their cost of goods haven't gone up 10x. So I think it's kind of one of those things. What when prices start to go up, everybody just raises their prices and sees if they can get it. Um, I mean, yeah, and I mean, you, you think about it. So I go back to this argument, and again, this is going to be like, you know, someone's going to see this online, and they're going to be like, oh man, you know. Well, of course that should happen, but you know when our grandparents bought the first cheeseburger at McDonald's, it's five cents. I mean, we know what that is today, right? But that didn't arbitrarily just jump to that. It moved at a two percent target and then jumped as inflation jumped to keep up with those things. But we've gotten used to that. But what you'll see happen is you'll see more deals being made. The price won't come down, but more deals are being made, just like what we're seeing right now at fast food restaurants. Buy a meal, get another one for a dollar or other item for a dollar. Like that, or, you know, at one point, remember there was like a 99-cent menu. Like, that stuff does come back, you know. I've done so, those at one yeah, point in my life. it cycles through, right? It's part <laughs> of it. But that's, to your point, you know, you don't see that with like automobiles and you don't see that with other items. You don't see that with your energy bill. So I, I think there's there's ways to look at this and I think we're all impacted in different ways by it. But I do think that the consumers, based on some of the feedback we've gotten, you know, they're really seeing it right now in multiple ways, which also kind of goes with the credit card debt. I mean, we continue to see this get elevated and this personal savings rate continues to dwindle. So we know people are feeling it and well, we're not trying to we're not trying to say you're not what we're trying to say is that we think it's coming down and because it's coming down at the rate in which it's coming down it could go back up like we've talked about in previous shows why it could go back up but we don't think it's going to jump to the levels of 7 and 8 again like we're saying it might go from 3.2 to 3.5 one month and then come back down to 3.4 we're going to see this little yo-yo in that range if you may but ultimately it's gotten a lot better Absolutely. That's and what we're trying also, to say here. And it also probably feels worse for some consumers if they do have credit yeah. cards. Those rates have gone up. The cost of, of the debt that they're carrying has gone up. So, 
it's kind of a, it, it's kind of, it's multiple factors and they're compounding. Yeah. But I would venture to say no one is feeling the inflation or the Fed funds rate being raised more than the credit card consumer division. Without no a doubt. one. Without I mean, a doubt. that is a, that is a five X multiplier over there right now. And maybe more than that. Like it's pretty, it's pretty brutal. You can Without see the doubt. numbers. It's brutal. So, but I mean, obviously the thing that you have to have to make all this work is a job. Right. If you don't have a job, all this stuff's kind of irrelevant. So we got job reports. You know, it's the job report every month that comes out. I mean, this is a circus show if I've ever seen it. But let's just jump right into this, uh, you know, false narrative that we're about to hear about how great the job market is. Right. So take us away. Well, you know, this time last year we were talking about how off the ADP jobs picture was. They changed their their formulas and their algorithms and their numbers were way off. And now they appear to be a lot more um, in line than oh, yeah. they, what we're seeing. They've got from their formula figured out over what there. What we're seeing from Bureau of Labor Statistics. But you know what? ADP's private sector. So a little different, but it's not controlled by the government. Right. That's private sector reporting. Right. So I think that's important we talk about that. And I'm no government conspiracy theorist, right? That's not what I'm trying to say here. But uh, but but the numbers are off, right? They're bad. They're not, they're not accurate. But the ADP's a hell of a lot more accurate. Well, there's definitely some head scratchers. I mean, the ADP report showed 164,000 jobs, which is more than the 130,000 they were expecting. Mm -hmm. There were revisions of the previous month that were 13,000 lower, which means they got it wrong uh, the previous two months, but 13,000 revisions is nothing compared to what we're about to talk about. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed 216,000 job creations, which was a lot stronger than what was anticipated of 170,000. So for the first time, they both reported the same narrative, which was more jobs than anticipated. Right. Say for the first time, often, oftentimes the case is whatever ADP says, the BLS report usually <laughs> says the opposite. <laughs> so at least if they match, at least we can try to formulate an opinion based on you know, the matching data. But um, you know, basically what happens is for mortgage rates and for the stock market, they trade based on the headline job creation number. Mm -hmm. So more jobs created than expected. Stocks usually will um, retreat. More, you know, depending on the situation, stocks may benefit from that. Mortgage mortgage rates generally don't benefit from that, um, and vice versa. So they trade on the headline numbers. But you know, if you look at that BLS report, there's some things that um, certainly make you scratch your head a little bit. But and, they trade on that headline number, though. Not to interrupt you, because they're anticipating the Fed's narrative, which is we need to see a softening of the labor market and inflation coming down. So you just talked about the PCE came down, win, check, right? And then the job market, it, it wasn't so far out of anticipation that, that or excuse me, of anticipated numbers that you would go, oh man, they, they still haven't got the softening part taken care of. Because what you're about to describe is exactly behind the scenes when you dive into the report and get past the headlines might be why the market went up. It, it might be when we talk about it. Right. Here. Well, what happened when the headline number came out is, is mortgage rates got worse yep. by a fairly decent amount. And then as the day went on and, and this report was actually looked at and somebody clicked it and opened it, <laughs> the, the rate's rel relatively flat. So it really didn't impact the market. But if you look at the BLS report, we've talked about the seasonal adjustments before. And essentially the the raw figure of job creations was actually negative 167,000. So it showed 167,000 job losses. But then when they do the seasonal adjustments, that got them to a positive number of 216,000. So Take that for what for what you want, but essentially they turned a negative number into a positive number by just an arbitrary adjustment and a formula they use. 
Um, but he just it, took it multiplied times negative one. Turn that positive, <laughs> turn that negative to a positive. We all learn that in elementary. Yeah, just, we know how to do this. This the, isn't that difficult, right? Carry the one. Yeah, just it's easy. But you know the so the seasonal adjustments. If you look at that, uh, they they go back and revise them uh, every. So if if the, this report comes out, this same report will be revised next month. The same report will, will be revised again mm-hmm. the following month, and then it'll be revised one more time. So they revise it for the for the following three months when you look at these reports. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, but the revisions have been considerably negative pretty much all but one month, I think, in 2023. Uh, Negative revisions for each month after these reports came out. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. The team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. So let's just get, let's get the audience. If we lost you for a second, I want to bring you right back in. We get this amazing looking number, which is a headline, right? And we get a reaction that's an overreaction. And then we get a revision from the previous month three times over. And what Daniel's trying to say is those revisions have been so negative that they are offsetting the previous month's gains by a negative number to where you're literally wiping out all the positive gains. But the reason you're not hearing this is because the media isn't talking about this. Because to Daniel's point, they didn't click and open the report. So they're not talking about this. And all we hear about is how strong the economy is right now and the thriving labor market. But everything in the reports says the exact opposite. And I think, you know, don't, don't quote me on this, but I think that the average uh, negative revisions, if you took the last 12 months as an, a monthly average, I think it's negative about 40,000. Um, so basically, if there were 200,000 jobs created, it's actually 160 every month. That's correct. To the point, the last 10 out of 12 months have been a negative downward revision. Think about that for a minute, because when we were talking pre-show, you could flip a coin and you're not going to land on tails 10 out of 12 times. That's just not going to happen. I mean, the odds are it could, but it's not going to. You got better odds of revising the labor pool over here and, you know, kind of moving the numbers to, to get what you want here. I mean, you think about this. Like, if I had to get up in front of an audience and talk every month about the economy, I would want those numbers to be positive. Right. I'm going to be like, no, nah, I mean, we got a strong labor market. That's what I want. So I'm going to do that. But the reality is there's some other numbers inside here that show that it's, this is not a strong market, starting with the household survey. Well, and the other unfortunate part about that is the market, like I said, they, they, they trade on the headline number. Correct. They don't go back and look at the revisions and say, oh, well, we should reverse our trades right. <laughs> based on what's happened you right. know, this month and the following month and the month after that. So that's the unfortunate part for mortgage rates is, you know, maybe we're in a different spot if these numbers were just right the first time. Well, so there's two two trained thoughts we're about to talk about here. The Federal Reserve also has all this data. Like, we're not the two smartest dudes in the room. They have this data coming here. Do they choose to read it correctly? That's one of the questions. Or do they choose to stay the course and appease the, the current 
administration on an election year. Let's not let's not hold any punches here. We're in an election year, right? And I don't care what side of the coin you're on. I don't care what party you're going for. If you're the incumbent, you want to do everything you can to stay in office. So let's see how this really works here. Is the Fed truly an independent Fed, or is it not? Is it going to you know play nice to to help the current administration stay in office? We're about to find out here in the first quarter. It'll be real quick to find out how nope. this looks. And again, I'm not playing sides here. I could care less who's in the office. What I care is that is our Fed an independent Fed and doing what's best for the economy. So we're about to find that out right here because, you know, are they going to read these reports that we're going to talk about? Because the household surveys, this is where they pick up the phone and they actually talk to the people. Yep. And they find out, do you have a job or do you not have a job? Did you lose your job? Or do we need to come up with a new BLS report? That's so right. How did that one go? That's right. So, yeah, so so the business survey is what creates the the job creation number. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously, as, a, as you might imagine, from surveying businesses. Sure. The household survey is where they get the unemployment rate. And like you said, they survey households. And uh, essentially that number showed 683,000 job losses. What, uh, but the unemployment rate stayed the same at 3.7%. The reason that that happened is because they removed 676,000 people from the labor force. Correct. So they take the unemployment rate, essentially, you know, they're, they're taking um, – the labor force is the major component of, of how they calculate the unemployment rate. So essentially, you've got almost one to one, six hundred eighty-three thousand job losses, but they took six hundred seventy-six thousand people out of the labor force, and that's why the unemployment rate remained at three point seven percent. So let's talk a little bit about this because <clears throat> here's how they got to that six hundred eighty-three: one point five million people lost their full-time job. So you got one point five million people that lost a full-time job, but we created, we being the country, created. 762,000 part-time jobs. So when you subtract that from the 1.5, you get the 683, right? Replacing full-time jobs with part-time jobs, that is not the sign of a strong economy. That is not the sign of uh, strengthening the labor force. What that tells me is that there are people that are holding more than one job. And we know for a fact it's on the highest record we've ever had in the United States of people having two jobs. So the probability to me is that, hey, those that kept a full-time job probably went and got a part-time job because of everything we're describing. Food costs, housing costs, rent costs, energy costs. I mean, people are having a hard time living right now, and you combine that with credit card bills, it's exasperating. So they're trying to stay above water and maintain you know, paying their bills. And that's how they do this. But to say that we have a strong economy on part-time jobs, I mean, we talked about this pre-show, most people hate their full-time job. (laughs) Nobody stands up and is like, man, I love my part-time job. I love having two jobs. Let me go get me another one. Right. I mean, it's it's why we have, I mean, most people don't even want to work. I mean, that literally, there are more people right now trying to figure out how not to go to work and make money than having to have a job. And that's just like human nature. That's why we have, that's why people go, thank God it's Friday. No one comes up and goes, thank God it's Monday. I mean, that's not how this works. That's why it's TGIF, right? not TGIM. Now, never heard that. 22 <laughs> years of work. Never heard people come in every Monday, but thank God it's Monday. It's why it's the most called in sick day statistically. Depends on how many kids you have. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And the age group, right? And the age group. But I mean, this is uh, this is just one of those things where you're like, man, this is, uh, this is a very unique um outlook, if you may, about the job market on here. Yeah. I think the big head scratcher we were talking about before the show as well is when is this, when is this outlook going to be reflective in initial jobless claims, mm-hmm. people filing for unemployment for the first time? Yeah. And because I think that's the number that is really what the markets are turning to for proof of softness in the labor market. 100%. And that essentially is 
as you might imagine, people that are on, uh, filing for unemployment for the first time. So they've lost their job for the very first time they're filing for unemployment. There's a separate number for how long they stay on an unemployment. Uh, but this is the first time that someone is applying for it, right? Right. So the, the question is, when is that really going to start to reflect in the jobless claims data? And I made the argument a little, a little while ago that as you get through the holidays, maybe into the months of February, March, some of these seasonal jobs um, start to go away, yep. no longer needed. Does that number rise? We're, we're at a number right now that would suggest a strong labor market, quite frankly. Um, and it's based it's, on initial claims, correct? On yeah. Initial claims, and it's come down considerably from what it was even in the middle of last year. We were hovering in two two hundred forty thousand to two hundred sixty thousand initial jobless claims on a weekly basis. Now it's down to about two hundred to two hundred ten thousand. So mm-hmm. that number's come down, which is another head scratcher when you look at these reports. There's some some things that are not necessarily lining up with maybe what you'd expect. Right. Well, and I mean, so what what we're wanting to see, and and by the way, want to see. We don't want to see my go file for unemployment. But the number that we're looking for, like the one that's going to catch us right away, is it's that 250. That's where it starts at 250. We get up in that 325 range, right? That's when we're in like that recessionary level. Uh-oh, we got a problem. But 250, between 250 and 325, those are going to be the levels where we really start seeing that softening of the labor market. And we continue to talk about it. We're, we're going to get to the rate point in a moment. We're just trying to explain how we're getting there logic-wise because the Fed is talking about two major things, inflation and softening the labor market. So that's what we've been discussing is softening the labor market. When those initial claims start peaking around that 250 range, I think they've accomplished that at that point. And that's what we're going to be looking for, for that uh, validation, if you may. Well, I think the question is with this renewed optimism with jobless claims coming in lower, there's Mm -hmm. kind of this renewed optimism as inflation data is taking, you know, baby steps downward. Maybe there's such thing as a soft landing now where we don't go into a recession. So it'll be interesting to see if, if the feds are willing to cut rates with, without seeing that jobless claim number come up, or if they're going to stay the course until... It's too late. You know, if they wait too long to start to cut rates, and they're very restrictive right now, when you look at inflation relative to the federal funds rate, that's very restrictive territory mm-hmm. that they're in right now. So it's you just be curious to see, do they actually start to cut rates sooner than later, or do we get to a point where things in the labor market turn pretty ugly and that prevents us from the soft landing because it's gone too far. Right. Well, and we just got, I mean, literally an index comes in today that kind of sets the tone for maybe something that might that might contradict the soft landing, right? And that was that New York manufacturing index that came in. And it came in at the lowest level, you know, much further than what people thought. It was supposed to come in at a negative five on the index. It came in at a negative, I think, 43.7. That's the lowest since 2001. Now, for our audience, what that means is that's, that's a manufacturing production index, right? Based on people having jobs and the production of goods. That right there tells us that there is a recession taking place in that sector, and we had Dan Habib on the show, I think maybe 40 episodes again, we were talking about rolling recessions and how they happen and how a rolling recession can tackle certain industries first, and then another one, and then another one. And, and the one that it tackled first may roll out of it before the next one takes place. There's some evidence there that the manufacturing section could be suffering that rolling recession, which could hinder you know, that soft landing. And to all of the wonderful points you've made here, I think that the Federal Reserve has this data. They're going to look at that six-month outlook. They're going to see the softening of the market is inevitable. It is happening. And that, hey, I think we need to pull the economy as well as just the, the 
the consumer out of this area they're in right now and maybe start cutting some of these rates and re- and reducing them, right? I'm not saying they're not going to start quantitative easing. They're not going to, you know, not do that yet. But right. I think the reduction of rates is sooner than later. And uh, you're probably going to see that by February. Yeah. Maybe even get it. Maybe even get it here in January. Well, my, my thought on it is you, you probably won't get a rate cut in January. That's the Fed meets soon. The next meeting is in March, and you know at the end of this month we'll get January PCE data. You're right. It's in March. My apologies, not February. Uh, yeah. So we'll get personal consumption expenditures at the end of January. The there's a thought that that number could be favorable, meaning less inflation, uh, and a good reason for that is because the producer price index came out um, earlier, um, or excuse me, last week, Mm -hmm. and came in lower than expected. Essentially, the producer price index is what it costs the people that make the goods to make them to then sell them to consumers. Correct. That number came in year over year at eight-tenths of 1%, which means that prices are not going up to make goods, which should give some optimism that inflation for the end user hopefully will be lower, right? It doesn't right. cost as much to make the good. You wouldn't expect the price to increase necessarily. So in that, a lot of the the data components in that show up in the PCE report. So if you get more favorable inflation data at the end of January, it just kind of starts to, to compound. And I think that the feds can make a case for, well, maybe we can cut rates a little bit here, even despite whatever happens with the job report. If inflation is continuing to come down, well, that's your, your, you know, they have a dual mandate, which is full employment, and 2% inflation. So they don't have a mandate of making sure the labor market breaks. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. you know, so I think that if they start seeing inflation come down, well, reasonably, you could still cut rates a quarter percent. Right. Or, or even half percent or even 100 basis points and still be in restrictive territory. Right. And I think it doesn't take much for the Federal Reserve to move the needle because I think, you know, I think if the prices get better in the secondary market, meaning, you know, where the loans are delivered, if the prices get better, you're going to see a cliff on the mortgage side that might get you a bank rate number that they were talking about earlier. And it won't take much for that to happen. And so one of the things I know we'll continue to do is evaluate this monthly, but also from a forecast standpoint, it should be a quarterly, you know, update, maybe even a monthly update, because this needle is going to move quickly both ways. And we just saw it in December and here in early January. And so if you're a real estate agent and you're listening to this show, you're a mortgage lender, you're a consumer looking to buy a house or refinance, right? Here are some things that you need to consider. When your lender calls you and says, hey, the rates have fallen, you're pr- just recognize that might not be there two weeks from then or even two days. I mean, this, this yo-yo effect, and you see at the very beginning of this lending update, and we'll put these in the notes section on our YouTube channel at What's Your One More. You got to see this fluctuation that they're putting here. This wide range is due to that fluctuation I'm talking about. And I mean, I know, I know there, are, there are consumers that got deals in the upper fives in December on government loans, on FHA, VA loans with minimal or no points attached. They can't get that today. That's here today. It was really gone tomorrow. It lasted about a two-week run. But that's how this whole outlook could be for this year, quite honestly. So if I'm an agent, you know, I'm working with my lender and my lender's putting that out there. I want to make sure that my my customers understand that. I want to make sure my sellers understand that. You know, and, and if I'm a consumer, definitely understand that that's not a game that someone's playing with you right now. That's It's literally real life and what they're dealing with. Well, and you, you definitely can't control... If you're purchasing a home, you can't control when you find the house you want to That's buy. That's right. Especially not in a tight inventory market like this. But don't play the game of, of floating for better rates. Unless, unless you're closing in a year, don't play the game of floating for better rates. Right. If there's a good opportunity there, these rates have come down, lock that in. 
and then maybe there's an opportunity for a refi. But, you know, there's a level of greed when rates come down, even when rates were at all-time lows. You know, rates were at 275 and people wanted to wait for two and a half. There's always this greed of, well, I think they're going to go lower. But I think that if you get some gains in a short time frame and you find a property and the stars align, you can yep. take advantage, lock that rate in and move on down the road because we are in a volatile market right now. All it takes is, you know, a voting member of the Fed to come out and say something about we're not cutting rates and then yeah. the, the markets react negatively and then that rate's gone. So. Yeah, and you just have to understand there's this good cop, bad cop dynamic going on in the Federal Reserve right now. You know, we can have all the good happen and then someone's got to come out and make a comment either A, to feel important or B, to offset the momentum. And it appears that none of them are on the same page when they come out and say what they say. And so it always has a negative impact on the market. I mean, I don't think over the last 12, 18 months, we've had a Fed member step out and it's moved the market in a positive way. It's always kind of taken away and negated all the gains we got from the Federal Reserve meeting. Yeah, notes. really Yeah, really. just the last press conference from Powell uh, where he was a lot, uh, a lot more dovish than yeah. he had been, which he really wasn't even dovish. He just wasn't. He just wasn't as, as hawkish or negative on the outlook. That's really the only time that somebody's come out and it's improved the rate market. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, just just think food for thought here that, you know, if you got an opportunity to lock it in, don't gamble with the rate. I, I just wouldn't do it. We don't we're not in a we're not in a stable market where that makes sense. And, you know, we've been out of that stable market really since two thousand eighteen, right? We've been out of that where, you know, there was a time when the rates were the same for almost six months. It's just what it was, right? And then we got in this market where it's just, it's so volatile. It's all over the place. And so just listen to your lender, uh, you know, and I'm not saying like that because, you know, I'm sitting here across the table from a lender right now. I'm just saying that they have the tools and they also have the ability to say, hey, listen, here's where we are right now. Let's, do we want to take advantage of this? Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Daniel, thanks for being on the show as always. Guys, if you like this podcast, please five-star review it, share it, Apple, Amazon, Google. And then uh, leave some comments. We always love getting the comments, and it uh, always helps us rank the show on here as well. And uh, we've got some wonderful guests coming up here in the first quarter, and uh, we're just kicking it off with Daniel here to start the year. So, Daniel, thanks again for your time. And, guys, thanks for tuning in to Watch Your One More. I got one more shot, I'm going to make it. One more chance, I'm going to take it. I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it. I got one life to live, so I put them all into it, yeah.